Hello, and welcome to Gay for Horror, the show where not all the movies are gay, but I sure am. How are you doing? I'm going to try to record this uh, efficiently because I'm planning to see The Lodge tonight, which I hope is great. Um, I wanted to say some words about uh, a new documentary. I'm not going to do traditional non-spoiler spoiler reviews because there's no spoilers. It's not a narrative film. Uh, but I, I wanted to talk to you about a documentary that I really loved and really would recommend if you're interested in queer horror things. This is pretty much essential. Uh, it's also a film that I have been aware of for a long time, and I've been waiting to see, and it finally made its national digital debut on March 3rd, uh, and I did see it all the way back on March 3rd, and I have failed thus far to uh, put to any record my thoughts on it. Uh, and so I wanted to do that. And the movie in question is a movie called Scream Queen, uh, My Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, that's Scream, comma, Queen, exclamation point. <laughs> and it's a documentary about Mark Patton, who is the lead star of A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, which is affectionately known as The Gay One. Uh, I've been I've known about this movie for a very long time, and I've been waiting to see it. I have literally framed and hanging in my living room. I have a signed movie poster or concept poster from way back when, when they were still financing it. They sold uh, these really beautiful uh, posters that are signed by Mark Patton and the film crew, and they uh, it's a great design. It's the cover of the DVD, and it's also probably the cover of the digital. Uh, listing. It's essentially the kind of like 80s teen outfit that Mark Patton wears in the movie, but with a kind of Freddy Krueger glove uh, adorning the hand. And then it says scream, comma, queen, exclamation point, and very sort of like pop art, like uh, glossy hot pink lettering. It's fabulous. Uh, <laughs> and it's you know, it's been a prized possession for a while, and I really love it. And it's in a it's in a place of honor, right in the center of my apartment in my living room, just above the television. Uh, but I hadn't seen the movie <laughs> all this time. I've been looking at it, and I hadn't seen the movie. And boy, would I have been disappointed if the movie was terrible. But it's not. It's great. Um, I, I'm just gonna say a few things. I mean, one is I assume that if you're listening, you probably know a little bit about Nightmare on Elm Street 2. So I'm not really gonna go into all the details of it. Also, the documentary will teach you that. So you don't need to hear it from me and then hear it from them. But let's just say the shorthand version uh, is that Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2, Freddy's Revenge, uh, through a series of sort of really complicated interworking uh intentional unintentional choices it just came out really flagrantly fabulously queer and camp and uh initially that seems to have been uh, a really devastating blow to a lot of the people involved especially mark Patton. uh but in hindsight uh as we often do queer people have really revisited the film and found this sort of wondrous uh, quality of, of just flaming homosexuality that I think for a lot of us we've affectionately attached to, especially people who are uh, feminine or effeminate or, uh, or, or uh, trans women, trans feminine, or just gay men, sissies, people who identify with being feminine at some cost to their person. 
because the femininity of the protagonist, Jesse, played by Mark, Mark Patton, is really the thing that has been, was and has been most chastised by mainstream audiences. And for all of us who have experienced that kind of mockery, um, there's a really visceral way that I think we relate to and uh, really celebrate this particular character uh, in a response to uh, the ways that we have seen him persecuted as we have been persecuted. Uh, and it's a sort of beautiful collectivity. And one of the things you will see in the documentary is, of course, the uh, the kinds of nightlife events and, and special screening events, and especially uh, involving drag performances of Freddy Krueger, um, organized by people like Peaches Christ around Nightmare on Elm Street Part Two, uh, which are just wonderful and really celebrate the film and have, I think, really elevated the film to perhaps the the most notorious queer horror film or the one kind of queer horror film that I think all horror fans kind of think of in those terms, uh, which is really interesting because as someone who writes a lot about the queerness in horror in a way that I think some audience of people really adamantly resist, um, you know, there's some audience of people who will, will just sort of continuously insist that uh, these films are not intended to be read this way, therefore your reading is invalid, um, which of course brings up this whole other set of questions about intention, which we'll get to. Um, but ultimately there's a there's almost always this contingency of, of mainstream audiences who insist that the queer readings are the othered readings or the alternative readings, and that the sort of heterosexual, uh, you know, dominant hegemonic readings are the norm, which is itself obviously a construction and not a reality and, and not not reflective of the experience of of all the people in the room. Because for some people, the queer reading is is not the the subtext or the alternative reading, but it's it's the flat out meaning of the movie. Uh, and there's no reason why it couldn't be or shouldn't be or isn't. Um, but with this one, they're really. I don't even know if there's even a pushback uh, any, anymore. And in some senses, that's what the film is about. Uh, and interestingly, I don't necessarily know if I think it's because of the the film itself uh, in the strictest sense. I feel like certainly it is something that has happened to the, the popular kind of knowledge of the film or the way the film is popularly received. Uh, but there's lots of flagrantly queer films in my eyes uh, that I think a lot of people still would push back on and insist are heteronormative heterosexual films. So, I mean, one of the things that's most interesting to me about Nightmare on Elm Street 2 is that it is distinct from others, and yet not all that distinct. Um, it's distinct in the way that it's perceived as queer almost universally. And yet, as someone who looks at horror films from a queer perspective, it's so alike to so many other things that are very camp. And uh, I mean, I think most slashers are very camp and queer from my perspective. But also, this is the project I've been working on for a very long time. Um, if I haven't mentioned, my dissertation was about queer slashers and particularly reading the slasher as a queer horror subgenre. Uh, pretty much universally and historically uh and i have a few if you're interested i have a few chapters that i've published uh, in book collections there's one in a book called recovering 1940s horror cinema um, on 1940s uh films that have really interesting formative traits that i think uh, have a bearing on the slasher some 40 years later there's a chapter in a book 
uh, in the Refocus series from Edinburgh University Press uh, on William Castle. Uh, the Refocus book on the films of William Castle has a chapter on queerness in castle slasher films, particularly Homicidal and Straight Jacket and I Saw What You Did, which are all wonderful, very campy, very flagrantly queer. I mean, two of the three have Joan Crawford and <laughs> and one has a character of, of multiple presented genders. You know, tell me that's not flagrantly queer. I'll wait, but I don't believe you. Um, anyway, so there's that chapter. And then the third one that's actually forthcoming is on the TV show Screen Queens, uh, the Ryan Murphy show. Uh, and that's uh, kind of, that is sort of like projecting into the contemporary moment about what is sort of differently queer about contemporary slashers and how uh, we often uh, may have thought we understood what was queer about slashers based upon a set of uh, identifications that are not necessarily the most contemporary. So, uh, you know, so the sort of like post Stonewall gay liberation movement represent represented queer people in a particular way and that may have shaped some of what we would think of as queer of, of the films of the 70s and the 80s but films that were films and tv and other media that's contemporary i think as queer identities evolve we're kind of rethinking what makes something queer or not queer or asking the question you know is is everything queer or or is queer distinct from gay which is a whole another sort of political distinction which is what is queer as an identity versus what is gay as a sexuality. Um, I'm not going to get into all of that because I, I could talk forever and in fact did produce like some 60 pages of writing on, on collectively on those topics. So that exists in the world. Oh, sorry, that third chapter I forgot to mention is from a forthcoming book called Final Girls, Feminism and Popular Culture from Paul Gray of Macmillan, which I believe is coming out in like May-ish. Um, I'm going to see proofs of the chapter soon, I think, is what I was told, and, and that should be out soon enough. So, uh, And if you're interested in that topic, by the way, you can actually find a kind of a, uh, an early working through of this that idea in a, a publicly available open access film review or TV review that is available on film criticism so if you google film criticism journal plus screen queens and there should be a review of season one of screen queens that's mine and and that's the sort of like condensed review version of the the chapter idea more or less um in its earlier stages so those, those are some of all the things um that I, that i'm doing and, and anyway so the reason to tell you that is that uh, I'm very preoccupied with this topic, <laughs> uh, you know, so so I'm, I'm really invested in the movie and, and uh, for me, I think there's Nightmare on Elm Street 2, is, it's the popularity and the notoriety of how queer that movie is, is wonderful because it gives, I think, a lot of people an, at least a, an, a mental access to the kinds of things that I'm talking about in terms of the queer readings of films or, or queer engagements with films. Uh, but but also, you know, from my perspective, it's just like the tip of the iceberg. Um, and to that effect, like one of the only things that I really uh, didn't universally necessarily uh, appreciate about the movie is just that from a kind of really annoying historical perspective on my part, um, I get, uh, I'm a little uh, unsure and a little bit, um, 
there's just a simplification that happens and i think it has to happen for the purposes of expediting the information of the movie but the idea here that's presented is that jesse is like the first ever male protagonist of a slasher movie uh and i think jesse has certainly become a particular fixture of queer interest in sort of you know feminine or femme or effeminate uh slasher protagonists who are assigned male at birth people however uh there's oh so many and it's they're right to say that it's not the norm but it's like not it's not unheard of at the time um it is more likely that the that the survivor figure or the final girl as is popularly said taken from the carol j clover article and book um is 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 a girl uh but i don't it's not the case that that nightmare on street 2 is the first movie to make that character a boy um so to speak uh, i think uh, so for example one of my favorite uh very, very camp very again very to me i don't see a way that there's a that there's a meaning to this movie that is not queer uh but one of my favorites is the burning which comes out in 1981 and like the the burning is so gay i mean it's just it's just shirtless boys at summer camp and they each just like take girls into the woods uh and the women all of the women in the movie have like the worst sex of their lives and i think at one point literally one of them says is that it because it's so unsatisfying uh and there's just it's just like a it's just like a, a sprawling array of like boring terrible mindless heterosexual sex that is the least erotic thing you've ever seen uh and then all of the the guys in the movie are meatheads like they're they're all they're all bullies they're all they all like to pull pranks the entire concept of the movie is that uh the killer is a former camp counselor who was or groundskeeper i don't know what his actual job title was but someone who worked at the camp uh who who was horribly disfigured by a prank uh that was that was the idea of campers at that time uh, they lit a fire in his apartment or his cabin whatever you call the little camping space i don't do camping but they lit a fire it was supposed to be a joke and then it, it actually caught his cabin on fire and he sort of comes back disfigured and all of the campers who disfigured him are now the camp counselors is, is a thing that we learned in that movie uh and so he's basically come back to kill all of the camp counselors but then there's this whole second generation of prankish meathead boys uh who are actively harassing uh, the 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 character who becomes the protagonist, who is a soft, weird, different boy, you know, like we are, and uh, and and he's the clearly the victim of pranks and clearly differentiated from all of the meathead prankster boys, and he befriends an older generation of sweet different boy who was involved in the initial prank years ago and who regrets it he's like the only one of them who regrets it and has learned from it and become a better more well-rounded person and then the two sort of like the two generations of sensitive boys you know like defeat the killer and walk off into the sunset together uh and you know it's super gay in 1981 so anyway as a historical record i uh agree that it is not the case that slashers uh often had survivor figures or most commonly had survivor figures that were boys quote unquote but i think uh i think it's it's not as novel as maybe some of the the accounts suggest uh and, and you know this is maybe just a symptom of the what i've been saying which is i think that what people are recognized about Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2 is great, but I also think that it is 
not i mean it's 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 it, there's a really a lot more of it everywhere and so that's the the i mean that's the the book that i'm i'm trying to work on a book project and that's the book project that i'm working on so stay tuned uh, <laughs> because if i ever get my life together it's gonna be great uh, anyway so i'm gonna push that aside and just talk about the movie um and what i loved about the movie because there, there's a couple things in here that i think are really wonderful and very helpful to all of us on a number of different levels. Uh, the first is I think that it's really important and I think that the number one thing that the movie does and the thing that it does best is put Mark Patton forward as a figure and really give him uh, the autobiographical uh, background or give us his autobiographical background in a way that is very meaningful. Um, I think this is an important thing that really ho hopefully does in some ways transform the conversation about this film and about queer films in general, which is, I think we're all guilty of, including myself, uh, really being attracted to some of the campy, outrageous, you know, really flamingly queer elements of films like Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2. Uh, and I think we've all for a long time kind of watched them in a bubble of thinking, uh, well, this is this is like a this is a flat surface. Like, you know, I could I could sort of press my hands to the screen and it's you know it's only a two-dimensional rendering. It's not it's not a person, it doesn't have a doesn't have feelings, it doesn't have a soul, right? Uh, and so my kind of campy, funny, ironic engagement with this thing is, and not only is it like totally wholesome, uh, it's actually helpful. It's, it's emotionally helpful for me to be in a room full of people who want to like laugh with me about this or celebrate this or, you know, scream with me about this and, and really have this queer experience of valorizing the effeminate kind of queer or gay archetype that Jesse sometimes is taken for. Uh, so there, and I don't d disagree that that's totally em emotionally and socially productive. I think that there is a really long history of queer engagements with media that might be camp or ironic, which are totally emotionally and socially productive. Uh, but we're, none of us are the person, none of us are the queer person in the movie who had to live through it. And I think that's the thing that the movie is most helpful at delivering, which is we've all sort of been foolish to not think that that person had suffered for this. And I think none of us have cared enough for how much that person uh, suffered for this. Uh, and, and, and I think that that's a thing that needs to be talked about. It's like an asterisk that I think every campy, funny, silly, article about the movie needs to to add it needs to be a, a paragraph or a footnote at the very least that explains who mark Patton was and what happened to him because it's not okay to only kind of love the film at the surface you you have to kind of i think do the best you can to be reparative in the sense of wanting to as much as you celebrate this recognize that there are performers who were hurt by this. In the last episode on The Invisible Man, um, I talked about Laird Krigar, who was a 1940s op openly gay actor who really suffered for being different and, and, and essentially died from uh, trying to fit in, more or less, indirectly. Uh, and, I, and I and I like to tell that story a lot because I feel like we need, we I, you know as much as I love the 1940s 
horror films that he was in. And I, I love that he's so gay and gregarious and, and, and also like an atypically, um, an atypical uh, man in terms of his appearance for Hollywood films. He was a large man. He was a very hulking, tall man. He was a really beautiful man in a very different way than what is usually presented to us in Hollywood films. Uh, but I, I always like to tell that story because I think as much as I like those films, I think we need to all, I need to always emphasize that not the, there's not a surface way that we can just take this and care about these films and not also acknowledge that there was a gay performer at the heart of those films who suffered in some way from bias at the time. Uh, and and that, that we, need, we need to always re remind ourselves as much as we can love this film, that there was a queer person at the heart of the film and that a queer person suffered for that film. Um, you know, not by our direct action, but as much as we want to reclaim the, 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 the queerness of the film, um, which might have in its time marginalized it, uh, we also, I think, need to recognize and reclaim the queer performer in those films. And so I always talk about Larry Kagar, and it, it, this, this documentary reminded me that we, I should and will, uh, you know, draw attention to Mark Patton. Um, I was unaware of really, I was unaware that he had, you know, left the country. I was unaware of his history with HIV and AIDS. Um, I was unaware that his uh, partner or recent partner, I forget the exact timeline, but that uh, someone whom he cared greatly about was already sick with HIV when he made the movie. Um, so to imagine being on a set and to realize that you are perhaps in a construction that is exploiting your closeted sexuality at the, the peak of the HIV AIDS crisis um, with, with your friends dying. Um, I think that is uh, an experience that I had never considered. And I'm, 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 I think better for knowing and understanding more about that experience and, and hopefully being uh, an advocate to encourage more people to talk about that experience or that part of the experience when they celebrate and talk about this particular movie. Um, so for those reasons, I think the documentary must be seen. Uh, and I think it will, uh, at least I can say specifically in terms of how I talk about the Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2, uh, it will transform how I talk about the film. Um, which, by the way, if you want a reference, I've not ever published a Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2 in, in, in short because it doesn't need to be written about, in my opinion, right now. Uh, there, there is, there are lots of queer readings of the film. The queer readings of the film are widely available in popular media at this this point, but the sort of definitive academic reading probably is uh, in Harry Benshoff's uh, Monsters in the Closet, um, which comes out in the 90s. It's one of the really early books about the queer subjects of the horror film, and there's a whole, if it's not a whole chapter, it's most of a chapter. That's all about kind of like defining and reading through the, the queer meaning of Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2. Um, the only place where I kind of differentiate from Harry Benchoff on that is that I uh, I think, if I recall, he really reads the slasher as a product of the AIDS crisis. And I just think historically the slasher has such a long history. And because my project is so much about the slasher's history, uh, I don't tend to read the slasher itself as a response to the HIV AIDS crisis. I think the slasher, if it has a sort of historical genesis, it's it's just the, the, the gay rights movement itself in the late 60s and 70s, because the slasher is a, a subgenre that comes about in the 70s, uh, really on the heels of the gay rights movement. 
Um, but the, the, the films in this period, historical period of 85, 86, films like Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2 and Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 2, uh, those two films, and I can't remember if, if Harry Benchoff talks about Texas Chainsaw 2, uh, but those two films, which come out, you know, later, or once, I mean, truly in, in the, the, age, the age of the AIDS crisis, uh, those films interestingly really modify the slasher formula because they're both about the transformation or possession of the main character uh in texas chainsaw 2 the main character is kind of a final girl but her name is speedy i think it's speedy i hope i hope that's right if it's not it's something close to that <laughs> uh but she by like by the end of the movie she basically turns into leatherface like she at the end of the second texas chainsaw movie her ending echoes the ending of Leatherface in the first Texas Chainsaw movie. So it's really a movie about her descent into otherness, um, which, by the way, the academic reference for that is Jack Halberstam's uh, Bodies That Splatter, which is from uh, a book uh, on gothic monsters called Skin Shows. Uh, and, and that would be the reference for Texas Chainsaw 2, for a queer reading of Texas Chainsaw 2, if you're interested in those things. Uh, but the sort of, you know, if you just want someone to, like, articulate the queerness of Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2, I would still look at the the Benchoff, um, Monsters in the Closet. Anyway, I haven't published on this film specifically, and, and for for these reasons that it's sort of widely available to, to everyone, everyone kind of agrees, or there's consensus about the queerness of this film. The second thing that I think is really important about the documentary and that I really admire and appreciate about the documentary, uh, Scream Queen, is that I think that it does get at um, the complexity of how something comes into its being as a queer object. That is an incredibly complicated thing. It is also perhaps one of my favorite things to talk about because it is completely impossible to explain. Uh, you know, you can read like Richard Dyer talk about Judy Garland, right? You can read people give their explanation of how this thing that was made in this mega conglomerate corporate system could possibly be you know, distilled into some sort of essence that queer people gravitate gravitate toward and and connect with. Um, I have an article in Bright Lights Film Journal about me as a queer child uh, kind of falling into my own obsession with The Little Mermaid and kind of essentially identifying and speaking queerness through my connection to Ariel and The Little Mermaid. The Little Mermaid is, as a sort of Disney product, not itself especially attuned to queer meaning, but then again, Howard Ashman, of course, uh, was a queer songwriter um, and had written uh, Little Shop of Horrors. Part of Your World is like the truest sort of queer, you know, sort of uh, lament of, of otherness and, and desire to fit in. Um, of course, the entire like Hans Christian Andersen story, um, I've not done extensive research on Hans Christian Andersen, but apparently he was, uh, his sexuality was un undefined and unknown, and some people seem to think he was asexual or in some way queer. Uh, and it, I have read, though I have not vetted the information very, very thoroughly, but I have read uh, kind of like anecdotally that the, the original manuscript of, of Little Mermaid was, was something of a, like a love story to a, a man that he was in love with. So the point being that there's this like 
impossible number of factors uh, that that clearly the the system that's funding this operation is is not itself intending to make something that is a, a queer object for a niche part of the the the, the movie going audience. But there's all these people, there's all these hands, there's all this, there's all these contributions. I mean, who writes the script? What inspired the script? Who who does the set design? Who who coordinates the props? Who does costumes? Uh, you know, how do all of those people work together and in some way produce something, perhaps without any conscious communication of this fact, that is read very viscerally and obviously. As, as a queer thing, uh, in this case, almost dominantly as a queer as a queer object. Um, I think I think the film is really good on that because it doesn't say clearly. No one knew, and and there was you know, and this just happened solely by accident. Uh, nor does it try to conspire to say, well, everyone knew, and it was hidden. You know, I think it it kind of falls in the middle, which is the truth. I think. What's the most interesting, the most interesting thing about that is I truly believe that no one spoke about it and it was not discussed and no one said we're making a queer film or this is, you know, this is, po you know, but as has often been the case with mainstream films that are read as queer, it's, it's not something that people are talking about, but I think it, it clearly on some impossible to identify level of consciousness it clearly happened like no one talked about it but everyone worked to that end maybe subconsciously or maybe just intuitively without saying like oh we're gonna make this look gay or queer or whatever right uh somehow that's just what happened right and somehow that was what that's you know when everyone like when when they like you know locked picture on the movie that's what they had regardless of if that's what anyone wanted to make or anyone thought they were making this sort of like improbable combination of of artists intuitively working together from the script to the props to the costumes to the performances all of those things just produced something that we experience as a very kind of flagrantly obviously queer object and i think the movie touches on the fact that everyone knew but no one knew or or at the very least uh no one knew but somehow everyone still participated uh, and and I and I, as much as um, you know, there's a space to question the intentions of different people involved in the production. Uh, I kind of believe a lot of them when they sort of say both that they didn't think of it, and also are kind of reminded that they kind of did, and it kind of comes back to them like a waking dream. <laughs> like like it it it's just like it's because and again this is because the verbal acknowledgement of queerness is a fairly new phenomenon. The you know you're talking about a history, a U.S. pop culture history where like Liberace was not seen as gay right people believed he was he was dating women people believed he was a womanizer uh there there are there 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 was just there was just not the the sense that you could point at something and say well that's clearly that's gay because that just it, the the verbal the verbal the public verbalization of that kind of a statement 
it truly didn't happen. It, it really didn't happen. And also there's a very long shifting history of what gay as a term means and whether gay people identified as a sort of community. Um, and, and that's a long history that maybe isn't important to go through in great detail. But needless to say, the idea of what is gay or what is queer historically is not stagnant. And I think that part of why, for example, films from the 1930s are very taboo and sometimes very queer uh, without necessarily being called on it uh, really has to do with the, the fact of plausible deniability. The ability for a mainstream audience, a heterosexual audience, to explain away what is what is what is obviously queer you know like Cary Grant wearing a woman's nightgown screaming I just want gay all of a sudden and bringing up baby uh you know there's just this ability to say he means happy no one's going to be no one's going to be the person to like to point at the thing and say I know what that is but everyone kind of knows it, but no one's going to be the person to point at it and recognize it. And maybe on some level, because meaning is structured as in such a heterosexual way, uh, they, it's not even registering. It's like always the, 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 the interpretation that's on the surface is always the straight interpretation because that's what we assume as the norm. So I kind of believe the complexity of the experience of trying to reconcile what one knew with what one didn't know in a, in a, in a culture where even though people were certainly out in the 80s and in the midst of the AIDS crisis, gay people were visible in a very unfortunate way. Uh, but it, we still were not quite at a time where someone would, I think, on the set have such a, I don't know, just like a... a would, would would think at first that they were making a queer film uh, or you know they might intuit the energy or the vibe or they might they might kind of go with it but somehow there's like a, there I think there's still this like it's just an ambient it's just an ambient kind of kind of uh, participation that might not even really be fully conceptualized right um anyway so there's a couple of moments that really pull that out uh, you know, there's that moment like over the fire where, the, you know, they're, they're all the sort of cast and the director have reunited at a convention and uh, the director is saying that he, didn't, he clearly didn't, he clearly didn't know that it was going to be a gay film or a queer film. And then someone points out, well, you know, it was in the script. There were things in the script. We shot at a gay bar. Uh, we cast queer, visibly queer extras. To, to, right, and it was like supposed to be an SM bar. It was supposed to be a bar for gender, gender nonconforming people. That was taken into account. It was in the script. It was in the costuming. It was in the casting. Like, how could we not know? How could you not know? All the, like all these choices were made. Um, and I think the ambiguity of that, I think, is what is interesting. Um, I know that it is perhaps unsatisfying. Uh, for for particularly Mark Patton, who's in the movie, who is who who had to live through something that no one else in the movie understands, and I, I, I will elaborate later. By the way, I have a lot to say about that. Uh, but I I also think that I I think some amount of that didn't, denial could be lies, and I don't I wouldn't deny that I wouldn't claim that that's not possible. Um, but I really think that uh, there is a there is just like a like a neutral filter. That people that, that straight people have, where they really don't they don't want to see it, and so they don't see it. Especially, 
you know, especially 30, 40 years ago, like, like you're, you're talking about a while, you're talking about a, a very different culture, which, which, by the way, I can only imagine because I wasn't born yet. Uh, so whatever. Um, but my my sort of long research into the history of, of, of you know, sort of queerness and media, especially, and queer history generally, I, I think that this bears out that, that uh, that you that you wouldn't you wouldn't you just kind of wouldn't always or if you knew it you wouldn't like you wouldn't say it or it wouldn't it wouldn't come to it almost wouldn't come to the surface of ones it wouldn't come from the subconscious or the conscious or even as it was happening it would somehow be suppressed <laughs> like I think I really do think that that is a factor in in queer representations and and the sort of queer possibilities of media is that. You know, there's this, there's this, there's this one moment where like boys snapping towels on each other's asses is super butch and macho, and and it's just boys being boys. And then there's this like other moment where it's just so homoerotic, and maybe it's both all the time, and and or you know, but there's just the the where this the change happens, I think is an impo- It's it's almost impossible to distill until you see it. And I think that's the thing that the movie really, the documentary gets out about the the movie, the, the name Nightmare on Elm Street, is it just was one of those things where they all f- maybe were making something that was supposed to go this way, and then somehow when you put it all together and you watch it back, it's just this other thing. Um, which, by the way, happens a lot, especially in camp and queer cultures. Like, there's all these amazing uh, queenie accounts of, like, being in the theater when Mommy Dearest premiered. Uh, and I don't have the, the text with me, but um, but there are, there, there, are, there are gay men who have written about being in the theater when Mommy Dearest premiered. And, um, and they talk about... When the movie started, it was a, supposed to be a serious biopic about Joan Crawford. And it was starring two-time Oscar winner Faye Dunaway, one of the greatest actresses of her time. And they describe the that, you know, the movie started and everyone kind of watched it one way for a little while. And then by the end, it had turned. Like, by the end, the energy had turned in the room where... The expectation that this would be a straight, legitimate, serious biopic had fully kind of it. It had just kind of the wheel had gone around once too many times, and it came out a very campy, funny movie that gay men had a good time with. Uh, And it's kind of uncontrollable in this weird way that like no one who made Mommy Dearest thought they were making a camp movie. No one who made Nightmare on Elm Street Part Two probably thought they were making a camp movie. But the choices were all. It, they all kind of came together, and what came out was that thing. Uh, and I find with queer with queer readings of dominant media or heterosexual media, straight media, whatever mainstream media, it's almost always this kind of like somehow this thing just came to be, and it was by the standard that it usually typically might be measured, it was a failure. But by my measure, it is brilliant, and that's kind of the entire purpose of camp, right? Which is like these things failed at the objective mainstream dominant hegemonic measure for success, but because of that failure to achieve high drama, we as this camp audience love it. Um, but even like, okay, so even the, like when, I, by the way, I really like that Robert England, who plays Freddy Krueger very famously in, in nearly all of the movies, except for the most recent remake, um, uh, 
both seems unflustered by the fact that the film was queer and also like can totally acknowledges that he knew that the film was queer and uh and talks about like how he wanted to like caress mark Patton's face when he, they were talking under the stairs and that mark Patton tuned into this and robert england tuned into this um and then like Rob, mark Patton has the story about I think the costumer or someone else on set and Robert England had said that he wanted to put the Freddy Krueger blade into Mark Patton's mouth. And the, the sort of third parties are like, don't you dare let that happen because it, it will look like it look like you're blowing him. I totally believe I like, I totally believe. And in my experience as a queer person who grew up in a very conservative, very kind of uh, repressive environment, like it makes perfect sense to me that everyone knew you know everyone knew it was happening but but truly no one at their core could could acknowledge it at, at, it at the conscious level like like i think that that is i think you know if you've ever been in a family that is uh or in, a, in an environment that is like distinctly not a queer friendly environment where you have people who are just like I don't know, passing off their lesbian partner as their cousin or shit like that. Like I've been in rooms where that's happening, where it's like, oh, this is my cousin. And you're like, that's, we're related. That We don't, we don't have, we don't have another cousin. What is the, you know, but, but in that world, it just, shit like that happens all the time, I think. And that's from a personal perspective. So maybe I'm wrong, but, but I, I just, I, I'm fascinated by that. And also just let me juxtapose the way that this movie treats that fact uh, with, um, there's a moment and it's written about, Heather Love has a great uh, book called Feeling Backwards, which is especially about uh, emotional and and sad, uh, sadness in, in queer representations and kind of the productivity of sadness and queer representations, but she pulls out from the cellular closet, which is the first time I heard someone speak of this moment. And I have since seen the the documentary cellular closet, which by the way, if you're interested in queer representation in film, you should definitely seek out um, the cellular closet documentary, which is itself based on the Vito Russo book of the same name. Uh, but that documentary, it's pretty widely available to rent digitally as well. Um, but in that documentary, Shirley MacLaine is interviewed about the Children's Hour, which, P.S., so, okay, this is a slightly tangential history of the Children's Hour. <laughs> uh, and I'm doing this from memory, so if I fuck up, I apologize. Um, but so the Children's Hour is based on a Lillian Hellman play. The play, I believe, premiered in the 30s or mm, around thereabouts, right? Uh, there was a film version directed by William Wyler, which I believe came out in 1930. 33 or, or there again thereabouts let's say also in the 30s uh, and it was it was called these three um and uh william wyler was going to adapt the lillian hellman play the lillian hellman play contains the children's hour contains uh very obvious barely subtext not really it's it's an essential part of understanding the movie or the play and the subsequent movie in my opinion it is essential to understand that uh, so in the play, uh, it's two women who run a school together, and one of the students at the school is in trouble, and in order to get out of trouble, she lies to her grandmother and tells the grandmother that the two women who run the school are lesbians, and that she's seen them together, and the grandmother is 
raging mad and pulls the girl from the school and the, the rumor spreads and the school has to shut down. And it's a sort of, it's a play and a subsequent movie that is very much about the persecution of, of, of queer people. And uh, it's about bigotry and about the experience of bigotry. It's kind of essential to the, the play and the, the 1960s movie that William Wilder also directed with Shirley MacLaine. It's kind of essential that you understand this one turn at the end. There's a moment where uh, Shirley MacLaine's character, who's one of these two women who have sort of lost their, their livelihood to a, a rumor about being lesbians, uh, Shirley MacLaine's character breaks down and confesses that she that she basically is is a lesbian is in love with in the movie audrey hepburn which who isn't in love with audrey hepburn but she confesses she like totally she can the whole the, the entire nature the premise of the scene at its core and there's almost no other way to interpret this is that she feels awful and sick and guilty because she is guilty of the thing that they said she was guilty of how else do you read that scene, right? There's like almost no way to get around it uh, that that's what the scene is about. And the people in the 1930s when the play premiered totally understood it that way. It like was it wasn't a secret that it was it was a taboo play with taboo subject matter, right? Um, and when William Wyler makes the movie in the 30s, which is called These Three, it was the title was changed perhaps in part because the plot was changed. But in the movie These Three. They, 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 this was during the age of the production code. So the production code, which was the governing rule, it was a pre-production set of restrictions that were imposed upon films at the script stage. Uh, and it was technically put into effect in 1930, but not strongly enforced until 34, which, by the way, probably means this film was after 34. So I'm going to say 35 or 36 or around there. 30s. Give me a break. Um, so, so uh, but anyway, it was strongly enforced from about 1934 onward. So films got way more conservative in the late the 30s and 40s than they were in the early 30s and 20s. Um, but anyway, the production code basically prohibited the mention of, or the, even the implication of lesbians. So William Wyler has to make the movie without the lesbians. So he changes it to be the rumor is that there that one of the two women had an affair with the other woman's fiance or boyfriend i don't remember what his title in life is who who knows but so there's one one of the women is dating a man and then the rumor is that the other woman had an affair with that man and that rumor destroys the school totally different plot right same structure different motive william wyler makes the children's hour again in, <laughs> again in the 60s i don't know his personal motivations but I would wager perhaps strongly because it was now possible to at least intimate lesbian. You could, you couldn't have like a full lesbian, but you could have like a quarter lesbian, right? You could have someone say, I think I might, mm, I don't know, who am I? You could have questioning and you can have, you could have remorse. Also, you can especially have a quarter lesbian if she dies in the end, uh, which by the way, the entire section of the documentary, The Cellular Closet, which of which this scene is a part, is just a montage of the many deaths and suicides of queer characters in Hollywood films in the 60s. They were endless. They all died. You could be a little gay or you could go to like one gay bar in one scene like advising consent 
And but as long as you committed suicide or died, it was a necessary outcome. Uh, but it was it was this like tiny window of visibility in the sixties. Uh, anyway, Heather Love's book kind of copes with and deals with something like the Children's Hour, which is about being depressed and feeling ill and feeling depraved because you have queer feelings. Uh, but in the Sailor Closet documentary, Shirley MacLaine says, now, a <laughs> disclaimer, I love Shirley MacLaine. I love the apartment. I love I love everything, right? Like Irma LaDuce, all great, wonderful. Shirley MacLaine's an angel. Um, but in the 90s, she said this in this documentary, and I just want to raise it because I feel like it's an important juxtaposition. That's the only reason. I'm not trying to hurt or insult the legacy of Shirley MacLaine. just want to clarify. Uh, but she basically says, uh, I didn't know. We, we didn't know. We didn't know anything. We, we, we never talked about it and audrey didn't know and and i didn't know and we never just we never said that this is what was happening and and if i had known i was playing a lesbian i would never have agreed to it because i would never play a lesbian who hates herself i would never play a lesbian who kills herself i would only play a lesbian as a confident strong you know proud gay woman so and it's it's in my in uh, in my opinion, it's bullshit because everyone knew it was lesbians because it's from the they knew it was lesbians in the 1930s, Mary. Like, what are you? What are you? Like, how? What I do believe wholeheartedly is that no one talked about it. Sure, no one ever talked about it. No one, no one talked about it when they made rope. No one talked about it when they made strangers on a train, right? No one, no one talks about it. They just talk about. They just, they just, they just, they just do the story, and everyone kind of knows it's happening, and there's maybe a, an occasional kind of like winky euphemism, and it happens, right? Like films that were obviously queer happened under the production code. Like, it happened, but it had to be sort of, like, winky euphemism. And the idea that Shirley MacLaine is saying that no one knew, no one could have possibly known, uh, it's very frustrating. Uh, and and then juxtaposed with, um, there's a, immediately after that, I believe, there's commentary given by, um, you know, it, there's a series of commentators throughout the movie. Some are stars from movies mentioned in the documentary, and some are queer people who are either performers or activists or, or scholars or writers. And there is a, uh, a a lesbian queer activist. I believe her name is Susie Bright. I hope that's right. Um, I think I think it's Susie something. It's been a long time since I've seen it, but she says, uh, you know, I like I'm incredibly moved and affected by the children's hour because as someone who celebrates my queerness loves my queerness goes to parades for my queerness by the way this is in the 90s when in which that is a, still a far more controversial act to be publicly openly queer uh, than it is now um you know even as that person i still relate to the shirley mclean character and i hate that i relate to her I hate that I see myself in her, but I do. And Heather Love uses this to talk about 
the importance of queer people really feeling through the sadness of uh, being a, a minority identity and being persecuted. And it's really an important, it's important not to overlook that that has a role in our experiences. Uh, Shirley MacLaine becomes the juxtaposition then because Shirley MacLaine is basically looking at this from a 90s kind of queer movement perspective where she doesn't want to be the bad guy. She doesn't want to be the one that played the lesbian that killed herself. You know, she she wants to be on the quote unquote right side of history. And she wants to say, well, I didn't know. And if I had known, I would have never done it. I would have I would have said that she should go and and be proud of herself. Because that's what's like the political moment of the 90s. That's what that's what's the kind of the correct or sort of progressive stance of the 90s. But the truth is, in the 60s, you no, know, I, 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 I'm sure that everyone on some level knew it was happening. But again, I believe her that no one talked about it. But everyone knew, and I think uh, I think it's anyway. It's not the point of whether it's true or, or whether they knew or they didn't. Know. The point is that it kind of is both all the time, right? Like no one no one was talking about it, but yet, yet, yet every, no one could say it in the '30s, but everyone knew it's what it was. And same for the '60s. And anyway, the the, the, tan, the point of the tangent is uh, that what Shirley MacLaine does in the Children's Hour, which is to disavow. To disavow the the ambiguity of the thinking around the creation of a queer object under an oppressive uh, in an oppressive time uh, is not is not what this documentary does. I think that this documentary, being Screen Queen, avows uh, the complexity and the fact, and it holds people accountable for what they knew, but also recognizes that there was certainly some level of implicit disavowal or you know the understanding that we weren't really doing that but we were just gonna like we were gonna know that that's what it was but it wasn't really what it was about we weren't you know we weren't really making a queer film uh but can i put this razor in your mouth uh you know and and i and that <laughs> uh <laughs> but like that kind of is the level that we're on and i think that that's probably the truest level which is Everyone knew and no one knew, and somehow because queerness operates in a sort of space of peripheral understanding that for most people is othered, othered totally in terms of how they read media, how they understand relationships, how they see themselves, right? That that it just, it, there was the ability to make this and, and not really, not consciously acknowledge it. Okay, I hope that made sense. Third thing, building off of that, this is the, the last thing I want to say. Uh, there's a scene at the end of the movie, uh, which is Mark Hatton confronting David Chaskin, who is the screenwriter of Nightmare on Elm Street 2. Uh, and in, in the documentary, they explain that Mark Hatton had felt strongly uh, that David Chaskin, who wrote the script, uh, with references to... Uh, you know, for example, like the bar being a queer bar or a space for queer people, maybe gender nonconforming people, uh, that that there are references to queerness in the script, and that there was a reference kind of to the coach being probably queer, and that they did know that that bar was going to be read as a queer bar on some level. It was in the script, right? So. So he wants to confront him about the fact that David Chaskin put into the script, and perhaps in his mind was the like inception of the queerness of the film, because it's in it's on some level it's in the script, and therefore everyone else acted after that script in a way that pieced together 
consciously or unconsciously a particularly queer object. But David Chaskin had uh, denied that that was the case and had basically stated that he intended it as subtext, but the casting of the movie had made it text, pretty much suggesting uh, that uh, the the queerness that he that he his his presentation of the queerness was supposed to be subtle and serious and important and uh and then they cast a you know a flaming queen in the lead role and that just took it over the edge um and i i uh i i'm saying that in the my imagined style of the conception of how that kind of a comment might come across to mark Patton, um uh not calling him a flaming queen, but acknowledging that he may have felt that that was sort of the implicit tone of that comment. I hope that is understood. So, okay, so, uh, so, so, anyway, so these comments were made. There's also a very weird quote where he says he intended the mood to be homophobic, which I don't even understand. <laughs> I truly don't understand. Um, and I, I don't think he ever explains. Anyway, so the, the whole movie kind of acknowledges that there is this somewhat of a rivalry between Mark Patton and David Cheskin, and uh, David Chaskin is not a part of the convention reunion, which is shown in the movie. Uh, but uh, the the movie kind of doesn't quite end, but the, the, so to speak, climax of the movie is they finally kind of confront each other. And it's basically teased in the, very early in the movie, so it seems like it's meant to be fairly climactic. Uh, this scene, I think, is... I don't think it's successful for the reason that the film seems to say it is, but I think it is incredibly successful at dramatizing something important for understanding queerness in horror films and all films generally. Because, so the film kind of posits that, you know, Mark, Mark Patton wants an apology from David Chaskin. Uh, David Chaskin at some point says, well, yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, very kind of flippantly in my opinion, uh, and the the film kind of holds on to that as like, well, we got it, and I think that that is almost the wrong, not the wrong, wrong is a strong word. I feel like that maybe isn't the, the best way to conceptualize that moment. I, you know, I think for Mark Patton as a person, um, you know, I, he ex he says that he feels closure, and I hope that he does. Uh, if that's the case, then I'm very happy for that for him. As a as a as a documentary, though, I think that more so than getting to the end and saying, "Well, we got it, and now it's okay," I think I think there's something else that happens in that scene that's really important, which is ultimately that scene is a queer person who has survived the homophobia of the '80s, who has survived the HIV/AIDS crisis who has lived through being lambasted and and parodied and 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 who's had his career mostly ended by the performance given in the film written by David Chaskin who is among the most deeply affected personally by the practice in the 70s and 80s and onward of using queerness as a kind of serviceable language for what is edgy or what is scary or what is different. Um, and 
this is not unique to Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2. That's why I started by saying, yes, it's distinct, but also it's kind of alike to everything else. This is not unique to Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2, that it's a movie that perhaps irresponsibly uses queerness to lambast or lampoon queer people and associate them with being murderous. Uh, I'm, I have a chapter on films in the 40s that do that. I have a book, hopefully, in my future life that will explain a longer history of that. Um, and I think that I'm not unique in recognizing some of that history. But, uh, but it is just often the case, you know, um, what, I mean, just the number of gay actors who have played slasher-type killers is really kind of astonishing and not not just that they were cast but that the way that they were cast and then the way that their sexuality was leveraged in the movie their persona was leveraged in the movie uh you know farley granger in rope um uh larry Krigar in everything especially the lodger uh and, and hangover square ivor novello in the lodger uh uh with the 1927 version larry Krigar was in the 45 uh, version uh, Tab Hunter in Sweet Kill, Salminio in Who Killed Teddy Bear, Victor Buono in The Strangler. Uh, there's just, there's so many. Uh, there's so many. Uh, oh, oh, oh. Fuck me. Anthony Perkins in Psycho. <laughs> like the biggest one, right? Um, you know, uh, so many, and so much, for so many of these performances, femininity or being feminine is leveraged as a way to make the character scary or othered or different. And they, being predominantly straight screenwriters and directors, are using us to scare their audiences, right? They're using us to denote something bad, something dangerous, something you would be creeped out by, that you wouldn't want to be around. Uh, and so... For those reasons, there's this long history of horror, and especially the slasher, being a place that queer people are villainized. And I would, that is historically just true. It just, it is, it is evidently true. If you look at all these films back to back, you know, it doesn't, it's not the most positive way of thinking of queer people. And, and add insult to injury that the people making these films are almost universally straight artists, right? And they don't, they don't, they don't understand what they're doing. They don't, they can't conceive of what they're doing. They don't understand that it's not like cool and edgy to put queer subtext or gay subtext in a slasher movie in 1984 at the height of the AIDS crisis. That that it's probably not cool or edgy, and certainly it would be gross to call scary to imply that there's something queer about Freddy Krueger uh, wanting to, you know, chase this young teenage boy. Uh, it's, it's just, it's a little gross and just baseline homophobic. And, and a lot of films also, to add insult to injury, are very transphobic in that the femininity of the protagonist extends to things like cross-dressing or gender non-conforming behavior. Um, or perhaps being trans, although there's not any especially close attention to the fact of the transness, so it just becomes ambiently othered, you know? Um, whether that's like Angela in Sleepaway Camp or the killer in Terror Train or right, people who are represented as 
gender non-conforming in ways that are never clearly specified, or even Norman Bates, you know, dressing up as mother. Uh, all these examples, right? Uh, the point is, I think the, the real value of that moment is for people who are the queer fans of horror, we all kind of, we all kind of want to believe that on some level that someone who made this was on our side, or at least, I don't know if that's conscious, but I kind of feel this way. Like you want to believe like, oh, like this, this, you know, this might be, this might be like a really progressive person who wants to make a movie about a, you know, a queer figure who like, you know, goes around and creates carnage and is awesome and kicks ass and like, you know, uh, ruins the prom, right? That that seems like an especially queer kind of radical energy to tap into. Uh, and from my eyes and what my whole book project is about is the way that that is a very kind of queer impulse uh, to identify with a character who like ruins the prom and ruins graduation day and ruins Valentine's day and right. And like picks on the, the jock and the cheerleader. And I'm not alone saying that. Uh, but, but ultimately I think whenever I get close enough to anyone who made any of these movies, I'm really painfully reminded that they they just wanted to make something that seemed cool and edgy. And if anything, they wanted to make something that would represent who I am, not as cool and radical and, you know, exciting or, you know, important or progressive. They, they wanted to represent me as the scary, creepy thing. Uh, and that was really all they ever intended. And anything that I made out of that, anything that I made out of the experience of seeing Norman Bates or seeing Angela in Sleepaway Camp or right, seeing any of these characters or seeing Jesse Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2, anything I made out of that that was a celebration of that, I did that for myself, right? Like all of us who have read into and who have affectionately attached to these horror movies where queer characters are antagonists and who and who have really kind of chosen to relate with and 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 bond socially and connect emotionally with those characters that world that like world of the queer spaces around horror movies is just so removed from the people who made that shit <laughs> uh you know and they don't know and i think what that scene brings to the fore and it you know Mark Patton you know sure am I is my identity being kind of disparaged by representations of queerness as murderous otherness yes but I have not ever been affected by that as much as Mark Patton right Mark Patton is in that scene the clearest embodiment of the queer person who has been exploited in order to represent queerness as scary murderous otherness right and he deserves the vindication of asking someone who made that choice why and you know the answer he gets is basically nothing the answer is i thought it would be cool based in more or less i'm not quoting directly the answer is i just thought it would be interesting like you know i, I you know not to besmirch anyone but i uh at some point listened to the director's commentary for sleepaway camp in my research because i thought well, this is like such a queer movie. You know, not only is it 
uh, not only is the killer gender nonconforming, uh, but you know all of the all the campers she kills are like assholes, and uh, and then there's the aunt who takes her in, who's just like a like an illustration. I mean, she's so cartoonish and strange and so camp. And I just thought, I wonder if like at any point during the director's commentaries there'll be any talk about these choices like i wonder if there's anything i could use and you know that's not what the movie was made for and so it's, it's not that I, it needs to be this but from my world uh it was just i realized like no this is this is this was made to be a sort of sensationalistic trite movie you know it was someone who was just out of film school who was making a cheapy movie at a summer camp uh, and it seemed kind of sensationalistic and exciting to have a character that was gender nonconforming and to treat like a big reveal. And they like found some college kid who was willing to show his dick and they paid him $10 and got him real drunk and, and they did the shot. And, and that's the kind of story that you get from the director's commentary on that, that movie. And you realize that like there, no, nobody did ever care, uh, in the way that I care about this, this, the character, you know, uh, and, and that's fine. Like, it's not anyone's responsibility to emulate myself to me, but I think that there's this like unspoken secret wish of like, I wish that there was a reason, or I wish that someone would kind of affirm that the way that I've loved this thing has some value. And that's like hard to even say in a way because I want to believe in the totality of my experience and I want to believe in the, the totality of the queer experience and that if we all here at this screening of this movie think that Jesse is a fucking hero and we love him, uh, nobody else's opinion matters. But the truth is that for all of us who have been treated as, you know, as second, <laughs> second class and who have been, uh, who have been uh, berated and perhaps if, if physically if not if not physically then emotionally um hurt by a, a large part of the population who dismisses us for our queerness um that it's really hard from that position to truly tune out the the dominant voice and and so i think what that particular scene embodies is the just the really harsh reality that as much as we create this world of queer meaning around all of these films, if you go back to the source, there's really nothing there. And it's what we've all made. Uh, and ultimately, I think the film does a great job of showing these queer worlds, the different drag shows or late night screenings, or the interview of Peaches Christ, who's a just an icon of, of queer horror and drag and horror. And I think that's really important. I think it's important to for all of us to kind of look at that moment. It's not a climax. It's an anti-climax. It's sort of like the moment in The Wizard of Oz where she gets to the end and she realizes that the wizard has no power, right? Like, if you can go all the way to the source, you, what you would find is like kind of a sad, goofy dude who didn't even know, who didn't understand what it would be to make a, a, a queer film for straight audiences during the AIDS crisis where queer people are killers. I didn't even know, really. Uh, and there's no, there's no there, there's no there there. Uh, but that's okay because I think what that 
inspires in me, and I think hopefully will inspire in other people, is this recognition of, but the queer spaces that are created have this incredible value. And they are really, truly, at, the, at their core, not subject to the behest or the intentions of the creators of these films. Uh, because as much as they are reactions to the films, as much as we kind of look at all of these films that probably treat us as props or treat us as villains and we want to sort of feel our way through them or, or you know engage with them in a productive way in terms of our ability to reclaim or to sort of co- collectively affirm for each other the importance of the femme hero or the right the or the trans hero or whatever that is the gay sissy hero whatever, whatever version of uh, a character we're, we're celebrating uh that that experience has all of the value and and in fact the thing that we perhaps most need to do is to relinquish the idea that anyone could affirm any more value onto that experience than what we have made for ourselves right that the person who made it is actually totally inconsequential and in fact quite pitiful but what we that those space you know the, the space of that interview which is i think awkward and and, and unfortunate and like just uh it's just it's so it's so and he's so inconsequential in a way uh compared with like the drag showing or you know like the it sort of ends on this note at this showing where there's performers and there's a big audience cheering and uh, that ultimately is the legacy of the film it's the meaning of the film it's what's been made from the film uh and it's really uh a confirmation from the perspective of queer performers and queer artists and queer people that the film has an incredible value. Uh, and, 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 and as much as I would always acknowledge and respect the role of Mark Patton in that, I would say too that I think hopefully um, by the end of the film, there's some sense that he has not just closure with David Chaskin, but just closure with the fact that ultimately, uh, the film, the film's legacy really doesn't sit with David Chaskin, uh, who is mostly irrelevant. And and no one, no one, not ever any of those drag screenings or queer screenings wants to wants to see that person. Uh, and I think uh, I think that the particular place to invest uh, energy is with the audience that that reciprocates the queerness of the film. I talked to Peaches Christ once. Uh, and Peaches Christ is an angel, uh, a queer angel. Uh, and uh, but we talked a lot about what happens in the theater when a queer performer performs. And the thing that we talked about, uh, that the kind of consensus we came to, uh, really mutually, I, I hope she would feel that way mutually, uh, was the thing that the queer performer is performing for us is not an emulation of whatever it is they're performing, whether it's Judy Garland or Freddy Krueger, but what they're, the, the sort of distinction of the queer performance is that it reflects back to queer people what was always already queer about this object that we all understood as queer, but that the dominant reading didn't acknowledge as queer. And so they perform what they, the, the sort of queer feeling of that thing, whether it's Freddy Krueger or Judy Garland or Little Edie, whatever it is, and we receive the recognition and the acknowledgement of, yes, that's what I've, I've always 
I've always seen Freddy Krueger as this queer thing. I've always seen Judy Garland as this queer thing. I've always seen Little Edie as this queer thing. And it is, from the queer performer to the queer audience, an affirmation of what we see that other people tell us isn't real. So in that relationship, there's no space for other people. <laughs> uh, there's no space, for, no space for straights. Fuck him. Uh, you know, Mark Patton is the queer performer, and he's reflecting to us what we always saw and understood as queer about Nightmare on Elm Street Part Two. And and I hope in a in a sort of beautiful, brilliant world, he would feel in the queer audience this reflection of what has always been really just beautiful and wonderful about him as a performer in that role, which is that we have always seen him and we've always loved him for the queerness of that role. And for as much as he suffered for his queerness, as much as we've suffered for our queerness, in this particular construction, we value and affirm each other. And that is one of the most succinct ways of, I think, characterizing the queer relationship to horror. And I think that this movie brings me to a space of seeing and understanding that better. So for those reasons, I think you must see it. It is available on digital, uh, so you can rent it. Uh, you can find it on almost every digital streaming platform. It's widely available. Um, so if you're home and you want to watch something, I really strongly recommend that you watch. All right. So if you made it all the way to the end, that's so generous of you. Thank you so much. <laughs> you can email me. If you want to contact me, you can email me at gayforhorror at gmail.com. Uh, and if you made it all the way to the end, I do have to tell you, it is required that I must say, um, that you know it is, it is contagious and we do recruit. So you're totally gay now. Bye.